Hey, y'all. You're listening to How I Got Here with Drina Whitfield, the podcast that dives deep into the unique journeys of some of the dopest entrepreneurs, business leaders, and personalities I know. I'm your host, Drina Whitfield. I created this podcast to have real, honest conversations about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Grab your notebook, sit back, relax, and catch these gems. So Cody, thank you so much for joining me today. I know we've been trying to get this scheduled for a minute. We're both working moms, so schedules change, things change, and we made it happen. So I'm excited (laughs) for you to join me today. Me too. Very excited. So before we get started, I want to ask you this question that I ask everyone, and we're going to take it all the way back to the very beginning. When you were graduating high school, what did you write in your yearbook when they asked you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Well, I will say, I don't even remember that question, right? I think everybody was doing like most likely to, and it was always silly stuff, like most likely to, you know, be in a fashion show or whatever. So what was I doing? in high school that I would be thinking about 10 years from then. You know, I probably would have said 10 years from now, I'll be an entrepreneur. I probably would have said I'd be in the magazine business because I was very interested in magazines. Like I loved fashion and style and um, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I wanted to be in a creative space like that. Okay. You're kind of still in that world today. I know, kind of. (laughs) So you kind of made your way down that path. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you got to this place. I've read somewhere that you were part of the Peter Stark producing program in grad school. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always interested as to why people want to get into production. Like what was your passion behind that? Because a lot of folks want to be in front of the camera or helping to write the scripts, but production, you know, what made you want to get into that? The long story short is that I studied broadcast journalism in college and I loved, I never wanted to do hard news. I knew that, but I was told you have to get a foundation in hard news in order to do like entertainment news. And so I did that and I worked at Fox News as an intern because it was a paid internship my senior year of college. And then I um, traveled the summer after I graduated, even though my dad was like, don't travel, you got a degree, get a job. (laughs) And so when I got back after six weeks abroad, I was like, I got to get a job. Otherwise, my dad is going to think I'm trash. So so the easiest (laughs) job for me to get was the last place I interned, which was Fox News. I say all that because I would not work at Fox News otherwise. Ah, Fox News! (laughs) I know, girl. And so it was, it was literally 24 hour news. It was in DC. So it was political focused. And I worked there for two years and I hated it. I hated, first of all, being in hard news and then everything you'd think about Fox, but I hated it. And, and I knew that I wanted to tell stories, but I wanted to tell stories that made people feel good. And at that time I was in love with movies and TV. Anytime I saw a trailer, I was like, oh, this is awesome. How do I do that? And I started researching film and TV. And so it wasn't like I went into it, like I'm a writer and I have to write, you know, it was like, I want to just be involved. And how do I do that? And so I started researching, like, what does it mean to be a writer? What does it mean to be a director? What is a producer? And I loved the Peter Stark producing program. I was comparing at the time USC and NYU, I think. And I love the Peter Stark producing program because they taught a little bit of everything. Like the whole curriculum was online. So you would learn what it means to be a director and what it means to be a writer and all these different things while learning the business of film and which is what producing is. And so I pursued uh, that program because I wanted to tell stories. I didn't know exactly where I fell, but I definitely saw myself as like a connector, a problem solver that could push things uphill. And that's really what producing was. When did you feel like this is what you really wanted to do? Honestly, probably in it, right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe even before. So when I had that, like, I cannot do this anymore moment at Fox News, of course I had to find a program and, and that process of identifying what I was looking for, what I wanted to learn, you know, all of that gave me more excitement about it. And then applying I remember my, I had to write an essay. So like you know, the process of having to put into words what I loved about movies, even though I was still learning what my role could be. What is, I still didn't know what a producer was. I was reading stuff. 
So just writing down like how movies made me feel, where they took me, right? The kinds of the the things that I felt I had experienced in life just because I saw a movie or I saw a show that like made me a doctor or made me, as I put in my essay, a courtesan because I love the Moulin Rouge. So like all of these characters that you can inhabit through storytelling. And so I think going through the process of applying and then being in the program and learning every single day. I made sure I did an internship every semester, if not two. So all of that just solidified it, to be honest. I really didn't know. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't. I mean, I think it's a bunch of like trial and error. You like you never know what you really want to do or what you're supposed to do until you're doing things, until you yeah. just have life ex- and work experience, you know? Yeah. I knew how it made me feel. Yeah. That was kind of it. Yeah. I mean, when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write. I had a dream of writing for Essence Magazine as all little Black girls, right? Um, and it wasn't until I went to college and saw the different like verticals of comms that I was like, oh, I can do some sort of storytelling in PR. So I think it's just, you know, trial and error and just experience. So once you go through the program, what's the next step? Like you graduated the program. Do you get do you automatically get synced with like a job opportunity or how does that work? You know, actually, formally, the Stark program is amazing because that is their goal is to place their students. And there's only 20 to 24, I think, each year to place them at a summer internship the in between the two year program that ultimately leads to working the second year because our classes are at night. And but basically placing you at a summer internship that ends up being your long term job or your first job. And so that was another thing I liked about the program. But for me, because I was so passionate about learning as much as I could, I made it a point. I took an internship. I forced an internship into existence that was not a part of the Stark program, only because it was new. And I interned at CAA, which their internship program was new. And I just wanted to learn the agency world. Mm-hmm. And so as such, it didn't automatically translate to like a job the next year. Also, because I didn't want to be an agent. Right. I just wanted to learn, you know, that they have all these different divisions. It isn't just repping people and like trying to get them jobs in movies and TV. Right? They have lifestyle. They have marketing. They have like all of these different departments. And so ultimately for me, I ended up at Fox Searchlight. I got an internship there and then I stayed there after I graduated. But there was no real movement, like nobody was going anywhere. So while I came in as an intern, graduate intern, so I was working all day long, getting paid very little. It wasn't the same as like a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And though I loved them and they loved me, like nobody was going anywhere. So nobody could, they couldn't hire me. So ultimately, and it was devastating, honestly, at the time. Yeah. I was going to say, how did you deal with that? Cause you're at a place where you want to work. No one's trying to leave. They love you. They want to keep you on, but you're like, I can't survive. Yeah. On this and I worked for a black woman who I loved and it was challenging. It was really it was really difficult. And so I ultimately went to work at the Los Angeles Film Festival as the assistant to the festival director. Little did I know that the Los Angeles Film Festival was owned by Film Independent, who also did the Independent Spirit Awards. So I worked for all three. I didn't know. Oh, that. wow. I didn't know that. going <laughs> in. Uh, <laughs> because the festival, if I recall, everything's changed now, but it was in June. And so our season was kind of like maybe... Well, let's say January through June is like hardcore festival. The Spirit Awards were in, I think, January. They were always like the week of the Oscars. So then the like July to January is the Spirit Awards. And so the whole year is film independent and the year round labs and events. So like it was it was different than I expected it to be. But the thing that job afforded me, or at least why I took it, was because the festival director was a woman and she was a producer, a full-time producer, and she was married with a kid. And I was like, those are things I want. So I want to go work with her and learn from her. Ultimately, it was just a lot more than I thought it was going to be. It was a great experience. It was just just a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long, how long were you there? So I was there from 09. Yep, 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 yep. Fall 09, I think, till 2012 or th- or or the beginning of 2013. And actually, there's a whole story there, which I'll share, not just there, but like that period of my life. Mm-hmm. 
two things about, you were asking about after leaving the program, what's next, right? And and for someone who wants to be a producer, there's a handful of pathways. You can get a job at a production company where you're learning how to make movies and then you move up in the ranks. You can get a job at an agency where you can learn some of that same stuff too. You can work for a producer, like assist, like be an assistant. Any of those jobs are going to be an assistant, but you can be an assistant to a producer and, and go up the ranks with them. And so when I could not stay at Fox Searchlight, which is what I would have loved to be able to work up the ranks there at a studio, my boss at the time was like, okay, well, I'm going to take you with me on my next movie. Like I'll make, you know, you can be a PA on my next movie and we'll figure it out from there. And this is before the LA Film Festival, but I had to take a job, right? So I go to the LA Film Festival, just like waiting for her to have a movie. And she gets, um, you know, her next movie is um, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which is filmed in India. And they only had Indian assistants. They needed local assistance because they needed uh, to be able to yeah. like tackle the lay of the land so that she couldn't bring me. Like it didn't like financially, they, it didn't make sense for them to hire a LA based or even travel an LA assistant. So she wasn't able to take me on that movie. So my other boss, like I could go to the LA film festival, my boss who I love, she's like, when I get on a movie, like my next movie, I'm gonna take you with me. And her next movie was an indie I'm totally forgetting the title. I want to say it's Motorcycle Diaries, but she might have made that one before I started working with her. She t- she did an indie and they didn't have the budget to take me. And it was like, okay, okay, guys. I appreciate right, it. Like it's back to back. <laughs> trying to look out, you know, and this is over like a year long period, right? But that's sort of the devastation of, yeah. um, for me, like what I thought my trajectory was going to be like, okay, Searchlight didn't work out. Okay, you know, this person couldn't take me on this. This person couldn't take me on this. You know, meanwhile, I'm also trying to develop my own stuff and hustle at this nonprofit, working three jobs, being paid very little. It was just a lot and very discouraging. And so the third thing that happened was that when my boss at the LA Film Festival left, ultimately she just needed to do, she needed to like take care of her family. Her husband was sick. Stephanie Elaine came to be the festival director. Another woman, producer, Black woman, also married. Like, yay. Like, these are just things I look for in a boss, right? Or, yeah, in a boss. At that point, I had been at that company, like, almost two years. And probably almost three. I'm totally doing horrible math. So I got there in, like, 2009. So this had to be at least 11, maybe early 2012, that she came over and they were like, do you want to be Stephanie's assistant? You know, I've been, I've been there long enough where there's a lot of other things I could do. There's a lot of other things I was doing. Right. I said no, because I was essentially tired of that same trajectory being a disappointment for me. And I, I said no, for that reason, I was like, I don't want to be her assistant. Like I've been here so long. I'm doing certain things that like, I'd rather be like a peer, right. Take a different job within the company than be her assistant. And she ultimately hired an assistant, of course, who went to Howard. I went to Howard. I didn't know this person at Howard. We were there at the same time. So we'd never met. And so she hired her on. And this person, long story short, like over a year, you know, couple year period, had that trajectory that I had been plotting, oh, planning. Wow. She, she was Stephanie's assistant and then eventually became her producing partner. And it was painful in a sense, but that person also became one of my best friends, like right away. It wasn't even mm-hmm. like a delay. <laughs> and so I bring that up to say that like, there was a whole lot of disappointment. There was a whole lot of like, this is the way it's supposed to go. And it's not going that way. What do I do now? But I am able to look in retrospect at the silver lining of that. And I wouldn't like, this is somebody who's like vital to my being. And I wouldn't know her if I had said yes to that job. Yeah. That that whole time period where you were experiencing disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, like how did you mentally deal with that? I don't know. Girl. Because I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of folks that are going through that are trying to achieve that same trajectory that you were going after, or in or in other careers that are experiencing similar disappointments in what they envision for their career. Yeah. It's always hard, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, what what do you feel like helped you get through that moment? Um, I am a pretty optimistic person, right? So like, I certainly had things that I could look forward to, right? So when it was the first boss, okay, cool. I got this other boss. Okay, that didn't work out. Hmm. 
you know, like I know a lot of people like I'm, I'm gonna figure this out. Like I, I was optimistic enough. I think the Stephanie thing hurt, like it hurt. But like I said, I was so grateful. I was so great. There's plenty of other things. There was breakups happening. There was a lot of life happening. <laughs> like <laughs> that ultimately that same friend, you know, was, was my rock. So it's like, I was able to balance some gratitude. I was able to balance like some optimism. I certainly wasn't like bright eyed and bushy tailed like I was in the beginning, <laughs> but you know, and I was pursuing my own independent projects, you know, on the side, which is always a challenge, but I had to have a little bit of faith in myself, my trajectory, even blind. It was blind faith. It was like, yeah. I was for sure. It was like, am I good enough? Is this going to work out? Am I doing the right things? Am I, am I supposed to be here? So I would say not giving up, like literally the only answer is not giving up. That doesn't mean that I was every day I was on 100, like you got this. No, it just means that it just means I wasn't on zero. (laughs) And you said at the same time, you were working on some of your independent projects. How are you also just juggling that when you're going through this period of like, no's, 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 and you're still trying to like, I'm still trying to do my own thing. It was a hot mess. This this business is hard, right? Like, so how did I, you know, just trying to, yeah, just, just making as much time as I could. That was probably another thing that kept me optimistic or kept me positive was partnering with people on projects. You know, I was working with a writer on a script back then, like 2008, we probably started working on something that, that never came to fruition, but I, you know, I got a friend out of that. So, so work didn't feel like work sometimes. It felt like it just felt more joyful. It felt more like we're, we're in this together. So I would say that me just holding on to any glimmer of happiness, doing all of this. And the other thing that happened in 2011, I think maybe it was 2010 actually, was my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And so it was a really difficult time. It was a really difficult time overall. And so for me, I had to just latch on to anything positive that I could. And I also had to ask myself a lot of tough questions. Like, am I supposed to be here? Am I supposed to be here in LA? Am I supposed to be here at this nonprofit making nonprofit money? Oh, wait, they're making less money and they just told us they have to cut all of our salaries. What's happening right now? It was a lot. (laughs) It was a lot. But you, you got through it. Yes. Yes. And I just, I just... You know, I would say too, my family, I love my family. My family's always been supportive of the things I was doing. They've always been impressed. Even when I was like, no, y'all don't understand. This isn't how it's supposed to go. (laughs) You know, so it's funny. I don't know. I've never, I don't think I've thought about that question. It's like, how did I, how did I keep it together? I I just wasn't at zero. Yeah. (laughs) I just kept kept going. going. Yeah. Yeah. How many no's would you say you may have experienced over during that time frame, but also leading up until you maybe have gotten a yes with Black Love? Um, I mean, probably countless. I just I probably didn't think of them as no's because I wasn't always just like going and pitching something and somebody saying no. It was sometimes it just came in a different form. Oh, and often it was like, oh, we really want to, but you know, like it came in a different form. So I probably didn't feel as bad. It's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but it has to be tons. Has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about that time when I was trying to leave a quote unquote, leave the business, which was 2012, end of 2012 to 2013. So I started a job at the top of 2013 um, that was at a PR firm. And that was me leaving the business. But for about <laughs> six months prior to that, I was looking for a job or I was going to move to D.C. I don't remember why I was trying to move to D.C. I mean, I remember that I was trying to like go where I knew more people. At that time, most of my friends lived in New York. So it was a way to be closer to them, a way to make more money. You just, I just felt like I couldn't make money out here and I needed to go home to Texas. I need to be able to have more income to be like more fluid to go back and forth. So I decided to, to leave the business. And so I went to work at a PR firm, but ultimately working for Canon, the camera company that uh, they had a new line of cinema cameras. And so I did PR for them, which was basically connecting them to filmmakers. That was like a program that I managed. And so 
the I I had optimism going into that that like there's so many things that people can do to make money. This I feel very fortunate. I think of the era that we grew up in, in terms of at that time, I think influencers were new and all these creative fields were new. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt like I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna figure out yeah. a way to combine all the things that I know to make money and to help others because that was a big part of everything I wanted to do. So I just kept like rolling, just rolling. <laughs> and how long were you at the PR firm? You said about six months. No, I was. Uh, it was in total a year and a half. So oh, I, okay. I started. Yes, girl, I was a publicist. Yeah, <laughs> like I really don't claim it at all. It's, I claim it as a joke, but but in all truth, two of my best friends are publicists. Like my best friends in the whole world. So I feel like I know a lot. Like I felt like I feel like a little publicist in some ways. But it was always a running joke because it's like I don't do what y'all do. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, I was there for a year and a half ultimately. I want to talk about like, how did black love come to be? Sure. Okay. So I started working. I just love that y'all are storytelling. I just love (laughs) that y'all are storytelling black couples and just the, the different experiences that we all go through as humans, but really just shining a love, a light on black love, because, you know, it's rare that we see that on the TV screens. Yeah. So just to give you a glimpse of all the starts and stops. So I actually had the idea for Black Love back in 2008. I think it was 2007. As a single Black woman and the media saying there's a Black marriage crisis and my parents are divorced. So people say if your parents are divorced, you're more likely to get divorced. And if, you, if you're a Black woman with multiple degrees, you're going, it's harder to find a man. And I had that. And not to mention just being in L.A. and people are like, oh, you can't meet anybody in L.A. So everybody's just you can't meet nobody. You're not going to find anybody, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not what I wanted, you know, for myself. And I felt sad that my friends were like going increasingly bitter. And and we just felt like we didn't have examples. We didn't have we couldn't see it, even though like I knew it was I knew it existed. I, I said to a friend once I was like. You know, do you know who, who who was telling me like nobody's happy, nobody's together? And I was like, no, no. Have you ever heard of Mara Brock Akil and Reggie Akil? Have you ever heard of? I mean, it's Salim and and then Reggie and Gina Bywood. And she was like, no, who are they? Because <laughs> she's not in TV and film. And this was also 2008, right? Yeah. If you're not in those fields, you really didn't know who they were. And I couldn't find them on the internet. Like I couldn't find pictures of them or articles or anything to show her. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided I wanted to create a place where Black love stories live. And so this is 2008. I did not want to make a documentary or I didn't think I wanted to make a documentary. And my cousin, who's from Chicago and knew a whole bunch of happy black couples, we set out and did audio interviews for a coffee table book, essentially. So that was 2008. And so all of these, well, 2008, 2000, I think we actually did the interviews in 2010 and this all started in 2008. But anyway, so that was like, you know, just these stops and starts. Like these are things that kind of kept me going and kept me excited mm-hmm. and kept me like, okay, I'm meant to be here. I know that. But it wasn't until, so as I mentioned, my dad got sick. So that definitely derailed a lot of the things that I was doing. It wasn't until 2013 that I met Tommy. We start dating quickly. We meet September of 2013. And by October, we're talking about black love. Like I mentioned it to him because he's a filmmaker and he's like, let's do it. I'm like, let's make it. And so I convinced Canon to give Tommy a camera loan because that's my yes. job so to find filmmakers that they can give cameras to. Okay. The plug. <laughs> <laughs> so we meet in September by January. We've convinced Canon to give this guy, Tommy, a camera loan to make black love. Which we're like, we're going to get Oprah instead, man. It's going to be great. (laughs) Manifesting. Yes. (laughs) And so so we had the cameras by May and we started shooting in the fall. I quit my job in the fall. So yeah, that's how it started. And it started, like I said, it was born out of wanting to show our community something different. And then it evolved into like us creating examples for ourselves because we were engaged at the point that we started shooting. Um, and we didn't have married parents to look to. So that's why we, that's why we did it. I love it. And look at it. Just out <laughs> here. Headed into the sixth season, right? Yes. You guys are yes. enough for sixth season. How do you pull the topics? So it started really organically. 
when we started doing interviews, we were doing it for a documentary, not a docu-series. And so we were, we did like 60 interviews and we looked up and we were like, well, two things. We were like, well, we can't really do these stories justice in a, in a 90 minute doc, you know, what's the beginning, middle and end. And how do we tell all of them or as many of them as we can? So we decided to make a docu-series where we could spend more time with the couples and the themes. And those themes were born out of like, again, we were engaged. We don't know nothing. We're talking to these people and lots of people are talking about communication problems. And lots of people are talking about infidelity. And lots of people are talking about trying to remember those early themes. But, you know, the, the themes ended up coming from what people told us. And we realized, oh, we can group this together and hear different people speak on this part of marriage. And so that is how the themes have been born all along. And then toward the last couple of seasons, I have said, like, what else do I want to talk about? Right. Like, what else do I want to make sure we cover that? And I also didn't expect it to last this long. I was like, can we do three seasons and be done? Because I didn't want it to get stale. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if people are going to want to see this year after year forever. You know, like I didn't want it to get stale. But here we are. (laughs) (laughs) And so now I've, I've sometimes identified themes in advance and that's based on things that people, you know, lots of people talk to me about their relationships now. And it may even be like one couple said something and we've never made an episode about it because we don't have enough couples. So let's seek more people who can talk about that, you know, like health. So I'm sure this came after like two years of interviews, but we did an episode in season three, I think it might've been two that was probably called in sickness and in health. And in that episode, we had Grant Hill and Tamia talking about, you know, MS. And we had another couple talking about going through uh, the wife having a, a brain tumor. And we had another couple talking about cancer. And like, we just, we wanted to, to talk through what it looks like to have an illness that um, affects the whole family, you know, that, yeah. that isn't just scary because you could lose someone, but also it's like, okay, we're going to be okay, but how does this challenge the relationship? And how did we get through it? And how are we there for each other? And how do we balance, you know, one person's emotions with the other person's like well-being? Like does does the does the sick person matter more? Right. Because you're like, I'm trying to be here for you, but I'm also breaking. Yeah. So we put that together over, you know, however many interviews it took to get the right stories. And how long does the interview process normally take, like you said, to get the right story? Like you know, when it's all pieced together, it looks like, oh, they just did this in like two weeks, maybe tops, but no. (laughs) So we started doing interviews in the fall of 2014 and we completed like 50 plus by summer 2016. We did a road trip actually in 2015. That was two weeks. And we went from uh, New York to Atlanta doing like two or three interviews a day in various cities. And so that was probably the bulk of, of season one, but we did a lot, you know, we did a Vegas, we did LA. So I say that to say we had like 50 or 60 interviews by the time that we put together season one, some of those interviews carried over to season two. And some of those interviews that we did before the show even aired, but season one was already locked. So like 2017 carried over into season two and three for that matter. Like we might've just had a really good interview that just didn't fit the earlier mm-hmm. seasons, it's like, okay, that one topic that I want to hit. Okay. Now we can do that. So in that sense, it's taken years. Right. But yeah. for instance, last year ish, right. Cause of COVID who knows how long we did a bunch of interviews at the end of 2019 and the top of 2020 that yielded all of seasons four and five. We did a oh, few wow. during the pandemic. We did a few, but for the most part, we did a couple of months of interviews that we split into two seasons. And we would have oh, done wow. more if we had, mm-hmm. you know, not a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but wait, I want to just rewind a little bit. So you and Tommy started dating, you said, in sep- was September, September 2013. And then January is when... 2014 is when you started. January is when we got the loan from Canon. We got them to agree to that. We didn't start shooting until fall 2014. And that was with just, how did you pick those people? 
Those were my best friend's parents. <laughs> we were, Tommy and I were shooting a movie in Detroit and uh, my best friend's from Novi, Michigan. And so we um, shot her parents, but that's what we did. We, we, we did friends and we did friends, parents, grandparents, whoever would let my, so the oldest couple in season one, they had been married at the time, I think 79 years, I think are my mom's first cousins, wife's parents. <laughs> so literally like my mom's. It's literally my mom's first cousin's parents-in-law. Okay. My second cousin's grandparents. Love it. So, yeah. So that's how we, that's how we found people. So you get all of this content. How do you package that and to ultimately get to the partnership with OWN? Like, how does that even happen? So at the time, Tommy was repped at CAA. So he had done this movie in Toronto. That's how we met. We met at the Toronto Film Festival in 2013. And so he was repped at CAA like from then on. And so by by summer 2017, when we were ready to go out with the with the show, CAA. So we, what we did was we prepared the first episode, a sizzle for the whole first season, because we already had all this footage, and a deck, like a like a, a deck that had what every episode was going to be, who was in it, what the theme was. So it was pretty thorough. Yeah. I mean, he's very good about like, make the yes inevitable, right? Don't give people a reason to say no. So I give him credit there. And so CAA basically sent that out to, you know, all the places, BT and and OWN and maybe Hallmark Channel at the time. I don't know, child. Um, I can't remember. (laughs) But that's how that, that's how it got out. Mm -hmm. And Owen, you know, was very excited about it from the get-go. And had we not had CAA, we probably would have done the same thing with the relationships that we had. Who knows if we'd mm-hmm. had the same traction because we didn't have CAA behind us, but right. we definitely had relationships. So we, we that helped gotten it out. Yeah. But for folks who don't necessarily have that backing or that those relationships are already What sort of advice would you give them if they're in a similar space? Like I have a really great concept. I've already done some of the work. What, like, where do they start? Honestly, I would say find the relationship. And that doesn't mean necessarily like find the executive at own that you want to pitch. Yes, you could do that. But like figure out what you need, as Tommy would say, to make the yes inevitable. Right. So let's say you are Joe Blow and you have the exact same stuff that Tommy and I have. You have the whole thing is shot. You have the first episode. You have, you know, all those things then you probably still need a producing partner that has mm-hmm. the relationships, right? Like you probably still need to slide in a Hooray's DMs, you know, Issa Rae's company. I'm just using that as an example because yeah. they're, they're accessible, you know, but like you, you, you've got to find somebody to help you shepherd into quote unquote Hollywood. I think, yes, you can submit things blindly and maybe somebody will go, Oh, I see this thing. But the reality is for the most part, our industry doesn't, first off, doesn't want, won't accept unsolicited submissions. And and then it's like, no one's vouching for you, right? So like, who's Joe Blow in my email, in my, in my inbox? I'm not reading this. <laughs> you know, and it could be, you know, while, even while I say that, it may not be a person or, or a production company. Maybe it's a, a, a lab, Sundance lab or film independent lab or some way to get your foot into the door of this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah diving a little bit further into that, you know, you and Tommy are the sole creative directors of Black Love. And so what advice would you give young creatives that are looking to get picked up by a production company, but they don't want to give up creative ownership or direction? So it's funny. I just had this conversation this week. You just remind me I owe somebody an email. But um, (laughs) the reality is that you, I just said reality when what I'm going to say is you want to be realistic. We read things, we see things about people like owning their content and we have to not just look at, oh, that person owns it, but how, why, how did they approach it? Who did they, Mm -hmm. who did they talk to? What did they bring to the table? We were able to do this. We own our show. We license it to own. We were able to do that because we brought to the table the whole show. We did it. We weren't asking for them to pay for us to do it. We weren't asking for them to connect us to to people to interview. So it's like knowing what you bring to 
and I don't want to say knowing what you bring to the table, like you don't bring enough. It's not like, like all of you is and your intellect is, is wonderful, but be realistic about what it is you have, what it is you control and what you're asking of a partner. If you're asking them to pay for it, then you are, you should expect to give something up. Yeah. And, and I'm learning that. Because we did what we did. And um, Tommy's really, you know, he's an economics major from Carnegie Mellon. This is why I chose him. Okay, I Googled him before. (laughs) You know, like, he's really good about figuring out not just how to make that yes inevitable, but even the yes to ownership. Right. He's very good Mm -hmm. about figuring out, like, if we're going to do it this way, we have to we have to lock up this, this and this. You know, you got to figure that out if you're going to if you want to own your content. Mm-hmm. What, so folks, for folks who don't know, like what, when you said you guys own the licensing for Black Love, what does that mean? So we own our show outright. Own pays us a fee to air it on the network. And Hulu pays us a fee to air it on Hulu. And uh, All Black well, pays us a fee to air it on All Black. And we also own it. So we reserve the right to stream it on Black Love Plus, which is where you can download our app and watch it for free. So it, it just means that we completely own That's the IP. There. <laughs> it, was organic. it was organic. It was. We completely right own that IP and we can do whatever we need to do with it. Okay. Smart. Very smart. I give him credit. When Black Love premiered on OWN, it was the most viewed unscripted series in in their history. And now, like you said, it's going into a sixth season. Why do you think the show is resonating so much with people? Yes, it feels good to be seen, you know, and we hadn't been for so long. And the reason, you know, boiling down one of the reasons that we did it, seeing is believing, right? Like, I remember in 08, when I had the idea to do the coffee table book, the Obamas had been elected, you know, into the office of president. And I say both of them seeing that that a black man could be president allowed our young black boys and some, you know, and our girls too to know that that was possible for them. Seeing healthy, happy black people in relationships being loved and treated well shows us that it's possible when we're told more often than not that it's not possible. And so I think that's why it resonated with people. And then it became like seeing themselves in terms of like, oh, man, I guess my marriage ain't that bad. (laughs) (laughs) When you look back at um, the past five seasons, who is one of your favorite couples? Mm, I'm not good at answering this. I'm not good at it. I, I actually probably do have an answer now, but everybody teaches me so much. And everybody I'm so personally grateful to for sharing their vulnerability in the ways that they have. And there's just like, honestly, different moments for different seasons of my own life. Mm -hmm. I remember season three, I had just had the twins and I started working on, we had a few more interviews to do, but I started editing like three weeks after they were born. And I remember Dondre and Sally Whitfield and Kevin, Melissa Fredericks talked a lot about vulnerability and partnership. And I just needed it that year, you know, like, like they stood out to me that year. Everybody did, but they stood out to me with what I was, the things that I was going through. Mm -hmm. And so the, you asked me like, it's a, did you say favorite? You didn't say the word favorite, but who stands out to me? Like, who do I, oh, you said favorite. I I can't can't say favorite. We could say who stands out to you. So the, the couple who probably encompasses all that we meant to accomplish with black love. And there's many. Okay. When I say, I'm about to say somebody and then I was like, well, the Ellis is too. So Deval and Kadeem definitely do, but the couple who exemplify black love and I just can't, I'm just so grateful to have them in my life to see them and their family grow. And I, and I just, you know, is a uh, Kariga and Felicia Bailey. Mm. So they were in season four they're the only couple we've ever done one entire episode on just them. Everybody, every other episode is five or six couples or more. And this one 42 minute period was just this one couple. And the story of the episode is that Felicia and Kariga have been together since high school in Sacramento. They went to college together. They went to Hampton. Uh, they went to grad school together. They went to Howard. 
And after being together for 15 years, married for eight, they, let's say 14 years, they got pregnant and their daughter Kamayu passed on the day she was born. And Kariga and Felicia managed to share their story and encapsulate how a grief is just love with nowhere to go and show such deep love and care and effort toward one another. And they're also like 33 or something. I don't even, they just young, but like they're young, (laughs) they're devoted. They're not just devoted to each other, but they're devoted to like growth and showing up for each other. And they're just amazing. They're just amazing. Mm. And they now have another daughter, Kamali, who was born earlier this year. What is this? 2021. And it's just wonderful to watch them continue to honor themselves as angel parents, to honor Kamayu and how she has impacted their lives and and who they are and how they give and serve. And we all get to, you know, watch them enjoy, you know, baby Kamali. And it's just, it's just, just epic. They're just mm. epic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> how do you choose your couples? Because I love, I love how it's a mix of like yes. household names, but also just everyday couples. Yes. It's always important to us that somebody recommends the couple or like that I, or, you know, Tommy's really passionate about somebody, but that somebody recommends the couple that they've been together long enough to really talk about their relationship and, and, and dynamics of their relationship and not just like platitudes, like, oh, marriage is so great. Um, You know, or marriage Mm -hmm. is hard work, you know, like, what does that mean? What does that work look like? You know, people who will really work to articulate what's required to make a relationship last. And yeah, and so that's important to us, celebrity or not. You can't just be famous. Like you have to have something to say. You have, hopefully somebody is vouching for you. That's what we ask for. And then I find people on social media that I kind of fall in love with. I literally fell in love with Kariga that way. Like I, oh, he was so vulnerable. And what you did, just sent the DM? Aww. Yes. We were DMing like generally. And then I reached out and I was like, uh, like generally meaning, when, when they lost um, Kamayu, September 30th, 2019, I had followed their pregnancy journey a bit. Like a lot of people I know were sharing them. They're gorgeous. So like, of course, everybody's like, oh, look at this beautiful couple. Been together all this time. HBCU love. And so when Kamayu passed, Kariga was just so not just vulnerable, but I used to love seeing him share how his friends like lifted him up. It's I, I love seeing black male affection and black male vulnerability. And I know I'm not the only one because whenever we show it, I'm like, love y'all be into it. But um, (laughs) it's important. It's an important thing to see, you know? It is. And so, yeah. So I wrote him and I was like, would you, is it too soon? But we were shooting at the time. So I had to ask, but nevertheless, I find people on social media that I fall in love with. I was, yeah, I was about to say somebody out loud that I want to interview, but I haven't said anything to them yet. So I'm not going to, but, but yeah. So So people, yeah. you know, you can get your shot. Yeah, nice I read the DMs, but it requires vulnerability. It really does. Like a lot of people just be cute and they'll write us and tag us and be like, oh, we should be on Black Love. And it's like, well, tell me more. Like but they don't want to get into like the, yeah. the grit of yeah. relationships being easy. Yeah. So what's next for Black Love? Well, we, um, you know, have launched a brand as a whole, right? Our goal is to show 360 degrees of Black love, you know, sisterhood, brotherhood, friendship, dating, partnership, self-love, love of community. And we work to do that year round. So, of course, there's romantic love with Black Love, the docuseries and a lot of the shows that we do, like After Love, which is the official Black Love After Show. We have a series called Couch Conversations on our app, and that previously was hosted by Devon and Kadeem Ellis. We're going to announce some new hosts soon. So we, there's lots of romantic love to be seen on all of our platforms. But we also work really hard to partner with brands to showcase all of these other aspects of Black love in every way possible. So we recently had a women's wellness retreat called the U Retreat here in LA that we hope to continue. We are going into our fourth annual Black Love Summit, which is a live event. Last year it was virtual. And we do a lot of digital content around love stories 
We are currently in the middle of a series called HBCU Love, a partnership that we I love it. I know. So excited about that. (laughs) Where we are highlighting, you know, pairs who met at HBCU. So sometimes they're married, sometimes they're engaged, sometimes they're best friends, but basically the person you can't live without who you met at your HBCU. So that has been a lot of fun to do. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing we want to do all the time, you know, and Mm -hmm. A big initiative for us is constantly talking about mental health and mental wellness. You know, our goal is to help Black folks be the best versions of ourselves. Because, you know, when you think about why we exist, why Black love exists, right, it's, it is to talk about relationships. And in order to have healthy relationships, you have to be, you have to be working on you. Mm-hmm. So everything we do really contributes back to how we're showing up for ourselves, how we're showing up for our loved ones and how our community can thrive as a result. How have you measured your success with Black love? Like, was there a point on some point on this journey where you once said, when I reach this point, I'll feel as though we've, we've reached our level of success? No, I would say that I always felt like Black love, the series that we were creating, and the, and the idea that I had many years ago, like whatever Black love existed as, I always felt like it would resonate with people. I didn't know, I didn't have any expectations on what that would look like. And so when season one performed so well, and people, you know, still like come up to us on the street all the time, like to talk about Black love, I didn't have, again, I didn't envision what it would look like. So I didn't, I wasn't I knew that it would mean something to our community. So I was really just grateful that it meant so much and that people were so vocal about it. But no, I don't have a place where success exists. You know, I am just grateful. I don't. Because for me, and I think this is part of it, right? I had three kids in two years, you know, got married. Let's see. We met in 2013. We started shooting in 2014. We got married in 2015. In 2016, we had our first child and licensed the show to own, even though nobody saw it till 2017. Season one launches in 2017, 2018. We have twins and the first Black Love Summit and Black Love. Oh my Love. God, Cody. So I feel like I haven't had time to define anything. I've been trying to survive a lot of that, to be honest. Yeah. And been grateful that people love it. And so I I, I never had a moment where success looked like X. Now I'm able to look at my life and say that success to me looks like being able to do these things that I love while also having like peace in my life. How much do you feel like social media has contributed to the impact of Black love? You know, I have nothing to compare to, but I would say that social media has been a huge gift for us. Me being like a fan of social media and like enjoying it allowed me to, I think, I feel like I know how to communicate with our audience around our show. And it's always a a uphill battle because frankly, I wish I could do it myself. And so asking a lot of, you know, having to train people and work with people like that has been such a horrible learning curve. And I mean, horrible, like hard. Um, not that people were horrible. It was just like, oh, you're not saying what I would say, you know, like, or you haven't watched every single episode, every single second, every single couple. So you're not saying the right thing, you know, like it's just, yeah. it's another baby for me. It's yeah. another baby. Um, so that's been really hard, but I think that it's allowed us to communicate with our audience. We own the show. So own doesn't do any marketing. So social media really was like our first way to market the show, like to talk mm-hmm. to people and say, watch us, watch us. We exist. Wow. You know? So OWN does no formal marketing push. And so everything that we've seen is directly yes. from y'all. Every bus bench or billboard or event is us. They put commercials on the network. And every once in a while, they've, they've done a little something like um, we were in O Magazine once, you know, like little things here and there, you know, real, real marketing efforts toward driving viewership to each season comes from us. And so social media has been such a big part of that, um, of that approach. Wow. Come on, Cody. Y'all out here working, (laughs) working. (laughs) For real. So you just shared like during this whole time of building and developing and 
filming and editing, you've had three kids, three boys. Yep. Yep. And I only got one. So how have you been able to like manage mothering your three children while mothering your other baby, Black Love? How's, how's, um, that, how's that working out? Uh, it's hard. I definitely have help. Don't get me wrong. We have a full-time nanny and full-time means Monday through Friday. But, you know, these kids, they wake up in the middle of the night. You know, they still, somebody still has to get up with them in the morning. And so it isn't just the mothering. It's the approach to partnership too, right? Like Tommy and I had to learn what that looks like for us. And I haven't always liked it. You know, there's like a lot of things I had to sort of become accustomed to in terms of like, he's not going to budge on X, Y, Z. And so I have to, and I'll just give you like one example, but I'm big on, um, I want one of us to put them to sleep more than a nanny or a babysitter puts us to sleep, puts them to sleep. So, and like, what does that really mean? Like, I don't want like four nights out of seven, it should be us, whatever. But Tommy was like, that's not a priority for me. You know, putting them to bed is not a priority for me. So like, you can have that rule, but I'll be here when I'm here. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I'm not going to commit to something that's not important to me. He'd be having boundaries. <laughs> when I wish he was just do what I ask. Okay. I'm not asking you to care about what I care about. I'm asking you to do what I ask. But, but that's just an example of learning those things that feel like no brainers, right? <laughs> like, Listen, I know. I used to be very much when me and my husband first moved in together, I'd be like, yeah, I don't go to bed with dirty dishes in the sink. Because this is just something my mother instilled in me when yes, I was alone. Yes. Now I'm like, listen, we're going to sleep. I do not even care right yeah. now. And that's the thing, the too. If you're coming at it from a different perspective, if he's like, I don't care. So right. those dishes will get done. And that's how I feel about random things like closing the cabinets. Like, I'm not a cabinet closer. There's always one person who just leaves the stuff open. And the other person would be like, oh, why don't you do it? And he used to be like, because you think someone's going to come behind you and close it or clean it or do whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to do it when I do it. It's not me expecting you to do it. It's just me not caring exactly about, what done. about a cabinet door being open yeah. or closed. <laughs> yeah. I got other things to think about. <laughs> How has it been working with Tommy? Because I know you guys also have its confluential content, right? Yes, yes, yes. So... You know, it's it's been an evolution, frankly, like working together, like we've worked together on the show, which is a very specific, we shoot it, we, I would craft the episodes, I, I'm still the director, but like he would review and give notes and have opinions, and, blah, 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 blah. and like that's a, that's a part of working together that we had early on that we had to work through how we communicated around it. You know, if he's like, you got to put this couple in, like, because it's, you know, important for marketing. And I'm like, I don't like, I don't like, whatever. I love all of our couples, but <laughs> There may be a reason that I just didn't want such and such in that season or something. Mm -hmm. So we've had to really work through our communication around things as well as trust, like me, me trusting him and his decisions and his opinions and vice versa. And he's been building confluential content pretty much simultaneously with Black Love. So while I have been knee deep in BlackLove.com and our brand campaigns and our digital content he has been on the other side, literally like developing features and TV projects, doc, uh, scripted, everything under that banner, which is just more broad than Black Love. Mm -hmm. And then we've had to learn where to draw the line, like where, like, you just not gonna have an opinion on this and I'm not gonna have an opinion on that. Or like, if I do, like, I'm just gonna respect that that's your baby or this, this part of it is yours. And there's really nothing for me to feel, to, to say. And so just figuring out where those boundaries are, figuring out when it's right to insist on something that we want mm-hmm. in these two in these two companies and how we can collaborate and contribute to each other's goals with black love and confidential content. Just piggybacking off of that, your mom, your wife, you're in a business relationship with your husband on certain projects. What's the one thing that you cannot live without right now in order to get through the day to just kind of <laughs> Don't make that face. In order to just survive the day, I'm gonna say coffee. Yay! Because unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't say what I want to say, which is like meditation. Like I do not have good practices. Ooh, I'm gonna say coffee, and I'm gonna say my walks. This week I've done okay. horribly on my walks. So I got to get my life in order. But I started taking walks 
I want to say early pandemic, but this thing is long. So uh, more than a year ago now. This thing is long, Cody. Like you would think it was early pandemic. But anyway, it's just gone on for a very long time. So who knows what the beginning was or the middle. Um, So so yeah, I try to do 8,000 steps a day. It used to be 10. And so I've given myself some grace in the last couple of months and made it eight. But the last two days was four. So sad. So yeah, my walks and my coffee. Coffee is life. Okay. Because, you know, a lot of these mom influencers and women who have businesses, they always say like all these things they have for self-care and what they, I'm horrible at it too. So I'm just always just interested in what other mompreneurs do to kind of stay sane throughout the day. Coffee is my thing too. I have a whole Peloton at home that I rarely get on, but I'm trying to do better at getting on during the week. So I'm always interested in hearing like, how are you surviving? Yeah, that's it. That's that's all I can ask for. That's it. Coffee. <laughs> you know, you've had a pretty diverse career and um, your journey is like, I, I, I know you haven't sat back and thought about like, oh, I've, I've hit a level of success just hearing that from you. But I think you really should. I think you should like just really look back. You said you, this concept of Black love started off as a coffee book idea. And now look, you're about to go into your sixth season. Because we're claiming it and beyond. <laughs> yep. You have an app, you have a summit, you have all these other projects that have kind of been birthed out of this initial concept. So I would say you're pretty successful and you've done a great job with this, your first baby. I, I, I do want to ask like, everyone has their personal mantra that they say to themselves to get them through the hard times or just to help them keep going. What's that one thing that you say to yourself? Or has been your like internal mantra throughout this whole journey from when you were getting all those no's up until so, now? I would say I probably didn't have one then. This, 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 the the biggest lesson in life or the biggest period of learning was probably 2018 when I was pregnant with the twins. And I was pregnant with the twins and I was, we were launching blacklove.com and we were launching the Black Love Summit and we were midway through season two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Cause um, split the season in half. So the first four episodes were in May and the second four were in October and I was due in November. And so <laughs> I remember, and, and Tommy and I were certainly not in a good place in terms of like communication, like us working together has been really challenging at times and gotten so much better in recent years. But like, I was, I just didn't feel like I was given a lot of grace. And so the lesson for me was to give myself grace. And that was 2018. And that has certainly remained. And I would say the other thing that that's evolved into. So, I mean, I'm still, I still have to remember and remind myself, just give myself grace. Okay. I didn't do that. I didn't do that when I, when he thought I should do it. I didn't do it when I thought I should do it, but we're going to do it now. (laughs) One thing that I know for sure is that I can do anything. Like literally I can Google it. I can learn it. I can do, I can be really good at it. Anything. Okay. Except accounting, but I can't do all (laughs) things. (laughs) I can't do all things at the same time. So like, if I'm going to be really good at this very new thing, if I'm going to be really good at the things I'm supposed to be doing, I need to, I need to delegate. I need to prioritize my time. I need to be really thoughtful about how I execute because I can't do it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just figuring out what works for you. I love that. Giving yourself grace. Like that's something that I think everyone needs to, to do, especially when they're, um, they're an entrepreneur or they're in a, like you said, like a, a, a working and personal relationship with their partner, you mm-hmm. know, and so it, you can get caught up in the work and just go, go, go. And like just yeah. the perception of others that you like, let me just sit down and give myself a minute and recollect, you know, yeah. myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I love, you know I love that, that um that Issa Ray, uh it's like a song from Insecure that people have used on Instagram. And uh, I'm assuming I can curse here, but you can believe yeah. it out when she goes, Bitch, you doing a good job, bitch, you doing a good job. Have you heard that? <laughs> yes. Yes. You gotta just play that in your head sometimes. Like, yes, I drank coffee today, bitch, you doing a good job, you know? <laughs> I gave my son that address, bitch. You doing it good because he won the addresses. (laughs) Um, 
Okay, so what's next for Cody and for Black Love? Definitely season six, like super, super deep into that. This Black Love Summit, doing these things simultaneously. That's not good, but that's what we're doing. And trying to focus a little bit more on me. Yeah, trying to focus a little bit more on on myself, my peace, my habits, my routines, and figure out how to be as efficient as I want to be. That's probably the biggest thing, Um, especially as my son has just started kindergarten in school, even though he's in Zoom school this week, this like pickup drop off situation is very new. Wild. It's wild. It's, it's super wild. I leave my house 20 minutes early for drop up. My house is right around the corner from my house. You know, I live really far from our school and I, but I think it would be even more frustrating if I lived super close. And had to just sit in the line. Oh my God, mm-hmm. I would lose it. That's why I leave early because I'm like, no, we're going to get right up in here at the very beginning because I'm not yeah. going to have to sit in traffic to turn onto the street. It's wild. <laughs> I never yeah. knew, like, you only see these things in movies. Yeah. Well, Cody, thank you so much for joining me today. I truly appreciate you carving out time. I know you got a lot going on over there. So <laughs> thank you for joining me and sharing your story and journey. No problem. Thank you for having me. Of course.